0: Turn me in your Bibles to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 9, for our Old Testament lesson this morning. Here we have a passage uh, that Paul himself will quote in our sermon text. So I think it'd be uh, well for us to understand the broader context, the reference that Paul makes. Here the Lord speaks to the prophet Jeremiah, attesting the very things that we've already confessed this morning and sung and prayed regarding the nature of man's boasting. Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Now turning with me to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 10, as we'll read verses 7 through the end of the chapter. It's a rather dense section, one uh, that I think we might find difficult to apply to our own lives as Paul speaks of the uniqueness in many ways of his own ministry, but I think uh, just as all of Scripture is relevant for us today, there are principles that Paul lays out for the church even here in the 21st century. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 7. Look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ's, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up, not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. I do not want to appear frightening to you with my letters. They say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak, and his speech of no account. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. But we will not boast beyond limits but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God has assigned to us to reach even you. For We are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you, for we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. We do not boast beyond limit in the labors of others, but our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you without boasting of work already done in another's area of influence. And here he cites Jeremiah 9, Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. This is God's word. Let us pray. our Gracious God and Father, we do ask that you would illuminate your word Open our eyes to see what the light of Your Word so clearly shows. Shine the spotlight of Your Word on our hearts, that as we examine ourselves, we would see where we have erred, we would be washed of our sins, that we would repent and turn and walk in the path of righteousness, clinging to Christ our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. I remember when I was in high school, uh, a senior in high school, in my English class, uh, on a particular Monday morning, uh, the girl who sat in front of me, uh, we weren't friends, I don't really even remember her name, but I remember this particular uh, Monday she walked into class rather shaken. uh, As we were sitting around talking, waiting for class to begin, people asked her what was wrong, and she told us that that particular weekend she had gotten pulled over by the cops. Uh, Her boyfriend lived on the other side of town, and she was coming home 10 or 11 o'clock the night before, and was on a dark stretch of road when an unmarked police car turned on his lights and pulled her over. She rolled down her window, and even though the man had a uniform and a badge, something did not feel right, and so she asked for his credentials. And when the man refused to show his credentials, she sped off and called 911, turns out this man was an imposter. He had, you know, the flashing lights on his uh, regular unmarked car. He had a uniform, uh, but it turned out to be phony. Here was a man who was an imposter who had been preying on young women. Here is the problem that we see besetting the city of Corinth. Imposters have infiltrated the church. False teachers, men that Paul will ridicule in the next chapter or two, calling them super-apostles or false-apostles, men who flash fake credentials. They exert a phony authority and lead the church astray to their own destruction and doom. Paul has already called these group of men out for not having the proper badge. You remember earlier in chapter 3, Paul talks about what is the proper qualification for a minister is that a man has been empowered by the Spirit to preach the Word of God with fidelity and sincerity. That simplicity of heart, that character is one of the hallmarks of a man appointed by God. But now Paul hits this at a different angle, as I said last week. Chapters 10 to 13 should be seen as a single unit where Paul sets his sights on the false teachers quite explicitly. Among all the many uh, problems that have plagued the church of Corinth, Paul now focuses on what he sees to be one of the root problems that have has exacerbated all the complaints uh, and trials that has beset the church. It is the problem of false teaching. And so Paul, as we saw last week, begins to engage in an act of spiritual warfare, spiritual warfare that uh, displays itself not in the act of uttering uh, magic incantations or rites or rituals but in the confronting of the mind what the word of god says and bringing every thought into subjection to the lord jesus christ and so paul begins to expose these false apostles he says look at their character. Look at their actions. What are they doing? Something is off. Much like the phony policemen, they claim to have the right credentials, and things look good on the outside, but still something is not right. And so the question Paul begins to lay out before the church of Corinth is this, how is it that a true minister of Christ operates As he continues to mount this extended defense against the false teachers, he lays down some basic principles for Christian ministry. We'll get to those principles at the end, but first we have to understand what it is that's going on in this section. So first, we'll consider uh, two basic things in our passage this morning. First, we'll consider uh, what we might call building. We'll see that in verses 7 to 12. And secondly, we'll consider the manner of boasting in verses 13-13. To 18, And then finally, we'll consider the significance that this has uh, for our congregation here this morning. So building, boasting, and then some reflections on the principles that Paul lays out here. I want you to consider all the tools that we have uh, to evaluate a particular item. Um, you know, if you have a fever, it would be rather awkward if somebody shows up with a slide ruler to try to take your temperature. Or if you wanted to see how much oil is left in the lawnmower to stick a thermometer in it, you would recognize right away you might have the right tool or criterion for something else, but it has been misappropriated here. For you to evaluate how a certain thing is performing, you need the proper objective standard to do so. And the problem is the Church of Corinth has used a faulty uh, gauge to determine what true spiritual leadership looks like. It's something that Paul's actually had to address in both of his letters to Corinth. We can call them the three B's brains, bronze, and bucks. Wisdom, power, and wealth. In a word, influence. Uh, The church of Corinth is in a town where influence is all the rage. That is what matters. That is what can, uh, according to worldly standards, uh, is what measures true leadership. And according to these false teachers, these men who have been more influenced by the word than by the cross, Paul fails to meet this criteria for true spiritual leadership. Uh, Paul must not be Christ's man. Here is a man who has spent the bulk of his ministry behind bars. Here's a man who has uh, repeatedly persecuted a man who's on the run, a man who has really nothing to his name. Here is a man who has a very weak persona in the pulpit. What you need, the false teachers say, is a man with a stronger charismatic uh, persona that will draw in the crowds. And Paul meets none of these criteria, therefore he must not be Christ's man. So now Paul calls the church to task for being hoodooed by this phony criteria. That's why Paul says here, look what is before your eyes. In other words, look at the facts. Corinth has regarded charismatic personality to be the criteria for spiritual maturity. They have made, they've made alleged spiritual gifts to be the standard for Christian leadership rather than the grace of God. Um, perhaps I can explain. I remember right before I went to seminary, uh, being uh, coming under care of the Presbytery uh, in North Florida in a different uh, denomination. And uh, right around the time, there was uh, an attempt to plant a new church on the west side of Jacksonville. Problem was, the person who had been called uh, to plant this new church uh, had been defrocked as a minister only several years prior for adultery. Adultery for which he had not repented of and had not been reconciled to his wife. This caused quite a a commotion in this particular presbytery. And when it came to presbytery, all these people showed up to speak uh, uh, on behalf of this uh, uh, guy they wanted to call as their church planner. And of course, the argument went like this. Look how gifted he is as a teacher. Even though there was no sign, admittedly, even by those who were uh, to care for him in the midst of his sin, there had been very little signs of repentance. See, gifting is important, but more important is the grace of God. The barometer for spiritual maturity is growth in grace. Not necessarily growth in gifting. Paul says, look, Look at the facts. Let's assume for the sake of the argument that these super-apostles are Christ's chosen vessel. If they're uh, Christ's chosen vessel, how much more so am I? he will go on in greater detail in chapter 12. I saw Jesus on the road to Damascus. The church appointed me to preach the gospel to you. My life bears the marks of Christ's sufferings. Just as Christ calls every believer to follow that same path of cross-bearing. So please forgive me if I'm boasting just a tad that the Lord has appointed me and not them to serve you. You can kind of feel the frustration pulsating through Paul's letter here, can't you? Here is Paul, who is a true minister of the gospel, and yet everybody seems to be flocking to these charismatic personalities of men that have no true criteria for leadership. They have, you know, they're, they're, they're the influencers. They might look great on social media, um, but they have not been appointed by God to fulfill this particular commission and task. I remember when I went to seminary, one of the frustrations I had as a seminarian was seeing the number of uh, classmates uh, in seminary, uh, and there were several who were never members of any church, yet were trying to make themselves and position themselves to be uh, kind of the the spokesman for Christianity on social media having thousands of Twitter followers and people retweeting them or, or posting these, these like pithy little bumper sticker slogans that in my mind were just completely cheesy and missed the point of what Christianity was about. But hey, they were getting a big following and it turns out they weren't even committed to the local church. It's the very problem that we see plaguing Corinth We have celebrities who have infiltrated the church, and people are listening to celebrities more than they are their pastor or their elder. So Paul says, I'm not ashamed if I'm going to boast just a tad in my authority because Christ has given me this authority for a particular purpose. You see that purpose here in verse 8. He says it's to build you up, not to tear you down. I think it's rather interesting in particular because Paul here will quote Jeremiah. Jeremiah, whose function as a prophet under the old covenant was actually to tear down and uproot Uh, Jeremiah's Ministry for that particular time in the life of the people of God was a ministry of judgment. Paul, now that he is a minister of the new covenant, comes and it's just the opposite. It is now for the purpose of building up, not tearing down. This goes back to Paul's understanding of what the ministry of the new covenant is. It is the building up of the house of God. This is something that Paul speaks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 quite extensively to the church. Paul says, I am not here to tear you down. My entire ministry is to fashion and shape, to edify the church of the living God that they might grow in godliness. My words are not intended to frighten you. That is not the point. Paul says, my goal is to build you up. Doesn't mean that he is endorsing a therapeutic Christianity. This is not about self-affirmation. Again, that is not the point. The point is growth in godliness. However, although Paul's concern is the building up the church, we find that these super apostles are concerned with building up their own reputation. Paul says, who are you going to follow? You see how embarrassing and awkward of a conversation this is where Paul has to criticize Men who are commending themselves, and now Paul has to kind of shine the spotlight on himself just a little bit to say, you're supposed to follow me because I've been commended by Christ. You see what the false teachers are doing is they're boasting not only in themselves, but they're measuring themselves uh, by one another. They're kind of like men uh, who who, uh, erect their own college, and they award degrees to all the insiders, Uh, And then go around telling everybody, oh, you know, such and such, he has a Ph.D. from this, you know, uh, college or university or seminary that he himself has built. Uh, They've created their own institution, and now they're giving themselves degrees and going from church to church, going, hey, look, here are our credentials, therefore you should listen to us. Paul says, these men are fools, they know nothing. According to Paul, their self-boasting only reflects a lack of self-awareness on their part. The irony here is that the men who talk the most about themselves are the ones who understand the least about themselves. Remember what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, Love builds up. It edifies, but knowledge puffs up. Here are false teachers who are more concerned with puffing up their own egos and their own knowledge than they are building up the church of Christ. Paul has sought to build up this congregation, and yet they've fallen head over heels for men who boast only in themselves and their accomplishments. So but Paul in verse 13 begins to boast in himself. Um, again, you, you, could, you could feel the awkwardness as he's not wanting to boast in himself, but he feels like he has to with respect to the sphere of authority that the Lord has given. And it's something he's going to do for the next several chapters. We're going to see that it's not boasting itself that's the problem, but the question, what is the object of your boast? Who is it that you're boasting in? And here, again, we see, I think, the problem of, uh, of authority, Uh, There's a TV show I really like on Netflix. It's a a kind of a modern Western kind of a murder she wrote meets cowboys and Indians type thing where like the local uh, Wyoming sheriff solves weekly murders. And of course, there's a local Native American reservation not too far away. And one of the issues he continually comes up, uh, uh, brushes up against is the problem of jurisdiction. For murder takes place on the reservation, it has now fallen outside of the scope of his own authority as the sheriff of Absheroka County. There are limits to one's authority, right? You know, I think we all recognize this even as parents or as teachers. You know, you know it's one thing for you to, let's say, spank your child or to reprimand your child, but it would be a completely other thing if somebody walked in off the street and started spanking your child right in front of you. You to recognize somebody has overstepped their particular bounds. And Paul is saying that's exactly what these false teachers are doing. Not only are they not qualified, they have no jurisdiction here within the church. They have handed you phony credentials. They have overextended themselves. So Paul says, you know, who is it that initially evangelized you? Who is it that discipled you and nurtured you? Paul says, it was me. So, why are you now putting stock into these knuckleheads? Paul says, We can boast in you because God has assigned us to you. Paul says, Essentially, I'm your pastor. You are under my authority, I am your servant. You make me proud because you are my child in the faith. This is what he was getting at in chapter 3. I have a right to put a picture of you on my fridge, right? You are my letter of recommendation. He has already said. Paul says, I'm not boasting in churches that I have not planted. I'm boasting in you. I'm not trying to extend my, or exert my, uh, my, my, my influence into other legitimate churches. However, these men have. They've walked right in just as if they owned the place. So even if these, these false teachers, again, what Paul's going to call the super apostles, says even if they are legitimate at best, they are... Still st- stealing sheep. They're poaching in another man's territory. They are boasting in a stolen glory. They're trying to piggyback off of Paul's own work. So Paul says here My hope is to see your faith increase, to see this church strengthened. And my hope is to use this church as a base of operations to extend our authority elsewhere. In other words, my, my goal is for us to do church planning. Use this church as a base of operations to start a new church, to go where the gospel has not been preached before, not simply to plant a church in the backyard where another church exists. And so we see the principle that Paul is getting at. He is boasting in what God has given him. Paul uh, uses a lot of words to really get at that in this particular passage. And yet, Paul continues to say, and Paul's going to have to address this from various angles over the next uh, several chapters. Again, it, it's hard to really focus on this one section without seeing what's going on in the rest of the chapter. So while we've got to take our time working through these final three chapters. We find that these super apostles do nothing but commend themselves. They exhibit no concern for the church. Their only concern is that you pay attention to them. I remember a number of years ago, there was a pastor from my hometown. He's recently a different pastor um, who has, in the past few years, uh, been defrocked. But he had part of his salary package, a wardrobe budget for five figures. You think about that. $10,000 plus a year spending allowance on clothes. Is that really what the, the focus of pastoral ministry is? It goes to show what that particular congregation and what, at least what that minister thought true spiritual authority and leadership looked like. And so we have to ask ourselves, and this is where we have to start applying. This is a very difficult passage, and, and there are certain things that we can't address until we get to later portions of Scripture uh, in, in this letter We have to ask ourselves, and this is what I think Paul is getting at as he's building a defense. What is the church's criteria for Christian leadership? Is it gifts? Or is it graces? Is it a charismatic persona? Or is it character? And here, the very thing that Paul keeps getting at now that the Spirit has been poured out in the new covenant, that those in ministry are going to be shaped and patterned according to the cross, where the ministry is going to look like one of repeated ongoing suffering. And these are men who are going to live lives of character and integrity. And so the picture of Christian leadership looks very different from the world that judges success by money, wealth, wisdom, and power. In other words, the cross shapes Christian leadership. The cross is not just the starting point of the Christian life, it is the totality of the Christian life. Jesus says, if any man desires to come after me, what must he do? He must take up his cross and follow me. If he does not do this, he cannot be my disciple. The life of the Christian is one that is marked by suffering and weakness, and this is a point that Corinth fails to get over and over and over again. That perhaps the most quote-unquote successful churches are not the big mega churches, and I'm not trying to, to, to deride any church in particular. All I'm trying to say is what's the criteria for what a faithful church looks like, and it is not size. It is not found in its social prestige. It is not found in the influence that it exerts in a particular area. Rather, it is found in faithfulness to the Word of God, even if it means extreme suffering. See, Paul is having to disciple. He's having to reshape for the Corinthian church what the cross looks like as it applies to the life of the congregation, but in particular here, the life of the church's leadership. And of course, Paul is talking about this as he's defending his own role as an apostle, and this adds a very, uh, an a extra layer of complexity as we try to apply this to our own lives, because we don't have apostles these days. I'm not an apostle. We have no apostles in the church. The apostles are dead. Right? What was the criterion for being an apostle according to the New Testament? That they were eyewitnesses of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So unless we have somebody on the face of this earth who is, you know, 2000 years old, we don't have who witnessed the, the <laughs> who witnessed the resurrection and was appointed by the church. We don't have any apostles today. But what we do have is the teaching of the apostles that's been committed to scripture. It is the rule of faith, the New Testament. The Bible is our standard and our criterion for evaluating true spiritual leadership. So I think we, in light of this, can derive at least three principles from this particular passage as it applies to us today. The first is this, that when it comes to the ministry, the minister must be church-centered, not self-centered. It's the very thing that Paul is criticizing regarding his opponents, isn't he? Here are men who are too busy commending themselves, but they're not giving attention to the sheep. But we see here, Paul's major concern is not to see how many followers he has on Twitter. His concern is that the church of Christ is built up. In other words, that the church continues to grow in godliness He's not afraid to use discipline if necessary, but the end goal is always that of Christian maturity. As important as spiritual gifts are, the New Testament gives greater weight to spiritual graces. John Newton talks about this in his letters. If you haven't read uh, the letters of John Newton or even uh, Banner of Truth just recently published the Jewels from John Newton, something like that, Um, I I commend it to you all to to pick up and read. And he has this wonderful section where he talks about... um, that everybody's so enamored with uh, particular gifts of individuals. And hey, look, the Lord gifts His church with good teachers, good pastors, good elders, good deacons, and, and those things are needed. Those things are necessary. But to have the proper gifting apart from the grace of God, just to call somebody just because they happen to be a good teacher, but they don't have the requisite character, Paul is saying you've missed the mark. That's why Paul, when he writes his pastoral letters, what is it that an elder or a pastor is required to do? Paul spends all of his time talking about godliness. He must handle his finances well. He must uh, be a one-woman man. He must not be uh, uh, brash or or brazen. He must not be one who insults people. He has to have a good reputation with outsiders. Then he goes, uh," yeah, also he should be apt to teach. See, there's a greater emphasis in uh, the New Testament placed on character for Christian leadership. You know, when we all stand before the judgment seat of Christ on the last day, our Lord's not going to ask if we ever wrote a blog or published a book or spoke at a major conference. He will ask, have you trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you honored your father and your mother? Have you kept the Sabbath? Have you loved your wife, thought the best of your coworker? Have you handled unjust suffering by forgiving your enemies? Wealth and power and prestige is not the criteria for faithful Christian ministry. Second application, the principle that Paul lays down here is that the church must be evangelical, not territorial. We see that here in verses 13 to 16. What do I mean by that? Our concern as Westminster Presbyterian Church, as part of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, is to make disciples, not to steal sheep. We're not here to try to steal other members from other churches. Though if other people from other churches end up joining here, that's okay. We welcome you. But our goal is what Paul's getting at. He says, you know, Our concern is to have a a launching base of operations that we see the gospel uh, reaching territories that uh, the gospel has not reached. We're not here just to build another church in somebody's backyard and begin poaching from that particular congregation. We want to see people who have never heard the name of the Lord Jesus Christ hear and profess faith in his name. And that should be something that we as a church here should seek to do, that we should see, seek to make the name of Christ known to people who, didn't, who have not tasted of the Lord's goodness. We should not see ourselves in competition with other faithful Bible-preaching churches. We're not the only church in the valley. We can work together. As a denomination, and as a congregation, we should be concerned in spreading the gospel to unreached places. And there is a lot here in Corvallis that needs to be reached, that has been yet still unreached. We need to be thinking as a church, how can we do this? How has the Lord gifted us as a particular congregation to reach people in Corvallis? Final, Final point, final application. You see that here in verses 17 and 18. We need a ministry that is God-boasting, not self-commending. Right? We do not have apostles alive today, but again, we do have the apostolic testimony. We have that of the New Testament. So the litmus test for apostolic teaching is the scriptures themselves. We cannot deviate one micro-thread from our course. Our lives must be distinguished by how much we talk about our Savior, not how much we talk about ourselves. It is not brains, bronze, or bucks that advances the kingdom of God. It is not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. God, working through the faithful ministry of the Word, is a ministry that boasts in nothing but the cross of Christ. This pulpit is here to proclaim Christ and Christ only. Not Charles Williams, not the session of Westminster, not the people of Westminster, not the OPC. We are here to proclaim Christ. We are here to boast in the cross of Christ alone. There are so many ways in which we could steal glory from God. And uh, with the high schoolers this morning, we were talking about the third commandment which it says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You shall not bear God's name worthlessly. You shall not steal his glory. There's so many ways in which we steal glory from God, Here, Paul reminds us that we are called to live lives of holiness, and yet at the same time, we are not called to boast in our holiness. That was the error of the Pharisees. We are called to love God, but we do not boast in how much we love God. We are called to be doctrinal. we We do not boast in how doctrinal we are. Our goal is to point people to our Savior, not to ourselves. That is a litmus test for a faithful ministry. Remember the old Isaac Watts hymn, Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast in anything except the cross of Christ. How easy it is for us to boast in our own self-righteousness when even our self-righteousness must be put to death. So as we reflect on this passage, both as individuals and as a congregation, we should ask these things about the ministry here. Is our allegiance to the gospel, or is it an allegiance to ourselves, a certain click? Are we growing to look more like Jesus, or are we simply trying to grow so that people might see us? And finally, are we participating in Christ's sufferings, or do we just want the glory for ourselves? Everything that we do must be evaluated the proper criterion according to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Gracious God and Father, we do ask that you would uh, take your word and emblazon it on our hearts, that you would use the cross uh, to shape how we view uh, what we should do here, week in and week out, as the people of God. Uh, Make us holy, we pray, and give us all that is needed for life and godliness. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand it together now as we sing.